0: In the name of God, the life-giving, all-loving, and incarnate word. Amen. Well, friends, let me begin by saying what an immense joy and honor it is to be standing here in this pulpit as the newest member of your St. John's clergy staff. I feel humbled, grateful, and honestly just pretty darn ecstatic to be joining you with my wife, Gracie, my daughter, Helen, as love-spreading difference makers in this valley that's always made my heart sing and in this community we love so deeply. So thank you for the privilege of serving you and serving alongside you as your priest. Okay, let's get started. Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Simplify. So saith the gospel according to Henry David Thoreau, the 19th century writer who helped popularize transcendentalism, one of America's earliest and most original philosophies. As you may recall, Thoreau was the young guy who up and left a fairly comfortable life in Concord, Massachusetts to live for two years, two months, and two days In a 10-by-15-by-12-foot cabin, he built himself on Walden Pond. His classic book, Walden, chronicles his experience immersing himself in nature and communing with a sense of the divine infusing all things. And this book absolutely floored me when I read it as an uber-eager high school sophomore, I read Walden on a 40-day summer Knowles course in Alaska. I was the youngest participant on a trip of mostly college students. And as we hiked through a somewhat surreal landscape of Arctic tundra in a perpetual twilight where the sun never really set, I would exuberantly exclaim to my outwardly patient and probably secretly annoyed fellow hikers, lines from Walden like these from the book's first paragraph. I went to the woods, Thoreau writes, because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. For an idealistic 16-year-old falling in love with poetry and learning the book became a kind of talisman, and lines like, I wanted to live deep and suck the marrow out of life became my living mantra. This book has always stayed with me, and in years since, I've circled back again and again, not just to that high romantic summons to live deliberately and suck the marrow out of life, but also to the quiet invitation to simplify, simplify, simplify. Those words felt somewhat helpful to me as an adolescent as I wrestled with choices that that at the time seemed grave and weighty. Where would I go to college? What would I study? What would I make of this one life of mine, and how would my desire to follow Jesus, to seek and serve Christ in all people, be a part of it? Now as a 38-year-old father, husband, and priest who is still trying to figure out how to live well and embody Christ's vision of love and liberation in a complex and often confounding world, those words feel more necessary than ever. Simplify. Simplify. So what are we to do as a community seeking to cover this valley in love, the way the snow covers the mountains in the wintertime? How are we to live as citizens when we are buffeted by a news cycle that reminds us of how inhumanely cruel we can be to one another and how tragically divided our opinions can be as a nation? How do we live deliberately? How are we to front the essential facts of life and not, when we come to die, discover that we have not lived. It can all feel so big, so almost overwhelming, and yet in the midst of so much stress and pressure, still I believe there is a whisper of a promise, a ghosting of a hope and that gentle invitation to simplify, simplify, simplify. As it happens, I believe this very invitation to simplify sits at the heart of the wisdom we are given in the passage from Luke's gospel appointed for today. As we might expect, Jesus was there long before Thoreau, offering us a way to live from and lean into hope in the midst of so much to despair over. The ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, in some ways, is the culmination of Jesus' entire public ministry. Jesus has been moving through the world, healing the sick, casting out demons, calming storms, and proclaiming good news to the discouraged. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he's slowly growing in his awareness that the movement of love and liberation that is catalyzing around him will ultimately result in the unhappy end of his trial and crucifixion. And we're told that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem anyway. After passing through the region of Samaria, he has a debate with his disciples. And then on the road, two separate seekers approach Jesus and express their desire to follow him. And there are a number of elements in these exchanges that are interesting and worth considering. But I want to hone in on one particular image today, the one we read in Jesus' response to that second seeker and ask what significance and perhaps wisdom it has to offer for us as we seek to live out our faith. This person expresses their desire to follow Jesus, and Christ responds, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. To be fair, I haven't spent a ton of time on farms. I was born in Houston, Texas, grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and then spent most of my years thereafter in college towns in New England and Great Britain. But for two years, I served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Madagascar in a rural region called the Andrui, which translates land of thorns, and whose geography pretty much resembles the arid west Texas my mom's from. The Andrui is cattle country, full of cacti, and when I wasn't teaching English, I spent lots of time with my Malagasy friends, often visiting the rural villages where their families farmed. I had a small plot of land behind the little house I was living in, And after learning a little bit about local farming practices, I decided to put some sweet potatoes in. One of my friends let me borrow his family's plow and his family's cow, and one afternoon we hitched up the plow and went to work. What amazed me about plowing was how much concentration it required. Working a plow hitched to a strong animal demands an intense sensitivity to how that animal is moving. You have to be singular in your focus, yet responsive. You try and direct that cow in a straight line, but if the cow moves, you have to shift and correct the movement of the plow and keep it moving forward. Plows are heavy and difficult to control. You have to keep both hands on the handles and use all your muscles to keep them steady. And if you take your eyes off the cow and the direction where it's heading, if you look back, the odds are the plow will start to pull in a direction you don't want it to go, cutting a jagged line across the field, perhaps tumbling down and breaking the rope with the cow careening away. So I'm guessing by now you're noticing that I'm belaboring this image in order to make a theological point. (laughs) And I'll save you any more details about Travis the farmer's experience in Madagascar. But I do want to apply Jesus' metaphor to the spiritual life to see what we can say about what following Christ looks like in the midst of living our messy lives. Firstly, to follow Jesus requires a commitment to keep looking forward, to set our face. At any given moment, There may be a variety of difficulties, distractions, confusions, and concerns in our own lives and in the wider world that tempt us to look back. We may feel frustrated by things that we, our loved ones or our political leaders, have done or left undone. Our hearts may feel broken to the point of despair, but we must continue looking forward. We stay present and keep plowing. There's a popular theologian named Rob Bell who says that sometimes our prayer on any given day should just be for God to show us the very next step, like an iPhone flashlight-sized clarity, just to see the next step to take in the dark. Secondly, in following Jesus, we must maintain perspective. We do all we can do but we also recognize that not everything depends on our individual efforts alone. For a field to get plowed and cultivated, for crops to grow, a whole constellation of efforts have to come together. There's the smith who makes the metal share that breaks the ground, the woodworker who builds the frame and the handles, the husbander who feeds and tends to the cow itself, and the person who guides the plow across the field. What we each can do, we must do, but not all of it is ours to do alone. Psychologist Carl Jung said that the imitation of Christ doesn't mean that we as modern peoples all become itinerant rabbis like Jesus and go get ourselves crucified, but rather the imitation of Christ means that we each live lives that are authentically true to who we are in our deepest selves and sense of call, as Jesus did to his. In building Christ's new earth, we do what we feel called and were born to do, trusting that others will come alongside us in the way. Which leads to my third and final point, which I think is the best news of all. As followers of Jesus, we also acknowledge the fact that the work we are invited into is not labor that we have to undertake alone, or even can accomplish alone. This is God's work, and we are merely partners in a collective, co-creative effort. Just as an immensely strong animal like a horse or a cow is needed to pull a plow, so we too have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lend us momentum, to impart a force and strength that we could not summon on our own. And of course, any growth from the seed that is sown in the ground will come from God. So when it comes to the work of building God's kingdom or kingdom, this new creation, this all transfiguring reality of love and liberation that Jesus preached and worked and died and rose for, that we are called to help bring into being often the most helpful thing that we can do, especially when the world feels so bewilderingly bleak and dark that we hardly know how to take the next step forward is to slow the tempo to refocus, to simplify. Putting a hand to the plow is Jesus' way of saying to all of us, simplify, hone in, pay attention. And if we want to see what putting a hand to the plow and true simplicity of life looks like, we look to the life of Jesus The joy that I felt being in the wilderness as a high school sophomore on that Knowles trip has only grown over the years. When I had a chance to come back to Jackson in July of 2020 as a summer chaplain, I got the opportunity to climb the Grand with the two of my best friends from college. I had a wise guide and climbing partner named Curtis who had spent years in the mountains. And as we made our way up slowly from the lower saddle, he said seven words that have stayed with me as much as the rose and ones I suspect some of you may know. In the mountains, Travis, he said, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And friends, if we want to know what simple expert elegance looks like climbing, we look to an expert guide like Curtis. If we want to see what flawless prose style looks like on the page, we can read a book like Walden. And if we want to see what God's love looks like simplified in practice, we study the life of Jesus. The more time I spend looking closely at Jesus' life as it's presented through the Gospels, the more I begin to see that Jesus essentially did two things. He moved through the world doing his work, pursuing what he believed he was called to do. And then secondly, he simply served those that life put across his path. When you think about it, Jesus never got up and set some strategic agenda for his day, saying to himself, well, at 10 a.m., I'm going to heal 10 lepers, and then I have to cast out a demon around noon, and then I've got a 2 p.m. with a bunch of Pharisees. No, he simply stayed focused on his work of embodying good news in the world and then loved those whom he happened to encounter. And yet it's also worth noting that Jesus' love toward those people could take on a variety of forms. When divine love encounters suffering, it manifests as compassion. When divine love encounters hardship and discouragement, it looks like comfort. When divine love encounters injustice, it looks like outrage and even anger. And when divine love encounters despair, it looks like courage. Jesus embodied all these loves at different points in his life and ministry, and I believe God gives us permission and even an exhortation to do the same. Ultimately, what Jesus' life and ministry embodies is hope a hope that all injustice and suffering will be resolved. But it is only through us, Christ's body, that God's reality of love and liberation will be brought into being in this world. We are the body of Christ and the only body God has to work and speak and act and move through now, physically, in this moment in history. Our summer theme at St. John's is peace like a river. And if we want peace like a river, the sort of peace that moves mightily, whose flow is steady and is not altered even by cataclysmic events like floods and droughts, we achieve that peace by channeling this simple way of being Jesus embodied. And we do not literally need to go into the woods to live deliberately as followers of Christ. Oh, there there are plenty of beautiful woods to go into if we want to do that here in Jackson. But we can be Christ's love and body in the wilderness of our homes, of our workplaces, at our Albertsons and Smiths and Targets and on the corners of our town square. We simplify. We keep looking forward. We do our work, but with the willingness to serve those whom life puts in our paths Trusting that God will bring new realities to blossom if we keep calm and with courage plow on. Friends, the field is wide before us. There's much work to do. But the horizon is wide and bright because God is the one who goes before us to prepare the soil and it is God who will yield the growth. So perhaps in this overwhelmingly complex week, we make this our mantra. Simplify, simplify, simplify. What do we do with the pain and heartbreak in our own lives? We simplify. We love God and keep moving forward. What do we do with the daily devastations of our news cycle? We trust God. And then we love others as fiercely as we can. How do we deal with the suffering in this world and the pain we so often feel? We simplify. We be God's love to those around us. Keep calm. Plow on. Amen.